Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, recovering from laryngitis, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. Again, I'm very pleased to announce that this episode has been brought to you by James Reed of J.M. Reed Bamboo Fly Rods. Each and every one of James Reed's hollow-built bamboo fly rods are specifically made for its new owner. James prefers to tailor-make each rod so it's perfectly fit to his client's own unique fishing requirements, casting style, and cosmetic tastes, all with the elegance of James's world-class tapers and attention to detail. I have yet to run into an angler who hasn't been ecstatic about his custom bamboo purchase. From small stream trout rods to saltwater rods to his famed two-handed steelhead and salmon rods, James is passionate about keeping tradition alive yet functional in today's popular fisheries. You can find more about James and his rods at www.jmreedbamboo.com or on Instagram at j.m.reedbamboo. In this episode of Anchored, John and I continue our talk about steelhead behavior. We discuss their memories, sensitivity to sound, and what's really happening underwater when they take your fly. Plus, I also get some facts about hatchery specifics. You said something really interesting earlier to me about fish sulking. Yes. And the memories of fish. I I could not believe my ears. Tell me about... What you found as far as fish memory, because you always hear people say, oh, you know, a memory of a goldfish, they forget in five seconds. Please tell me what you were well, telling me earlier. this is great. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, I'm angler before I was ever a scientist, even though I love science. But as an angler, I love to sit there and watch the fish. I mean, being a single guy with just a dog and living all those years in forks, what are you going to do? So 
over the course of several summers, what you learn to wash, and I saw this occasionally in the Washougal, is that you can eventually pick out fish that you've caught and released before. You know, the flows are low. Certain fish have easily identifiable markers, or they're just generally in a, in a school of fish where you've caught fish and there's been no rain. So the just is, we all as anglers know that when we go to a hole and we've been on that hole every day for maybe two or three months, we can, we can tell some of the fish apart. And I was using, uh, one of the summers, uh, a black palmer, which is a, a small wet fly by Hag Brown, little black thing. And I would cast it out and grease line it. And so you, you cast it, quartered a little bit upstream, you know, 50, 60 feet of line, and the, and the fly comes down and, and the fish sitting in what we would call kind of slow moving water would, would rise from the bottom and, and, and take the fly. Now, after I caught probably what I'm guessing, this was a school of about 20 fish, and I probably caught about six of those fish over the course of two weeks, and then they stopped taking. But I noticed something really interesting one of the days, which is as soon as I cast that fly, and I was letting it swing across, I noticed that one of the fish that I was certain I had caught, because I could clearly see it had the fungus patch on its nose that I had before I caught it, rises up to see the fly, takes a look, and then all of a sudden starts smacking its mouth open and closed like a dog who's mine after biting on something really nasty or citrusy. It's like... But he hasn't touched the fly. He, he didn't touch the fly. He just sees it. He and sees it. It immediately evokes this, this dreadful reaction. Horrible reaction. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Like when you, when you give the little kid the worst taste and stuff ever, this is sour. This is lemon. A dog just ate the nastiest shit you can imagine. It is smacking its lip. And the fish is smacking him so fast... That it's like a woman who's trying her lipstick on and she's on crank. And so this thing's got like 20 smacks in about five seconds. And then it just shakes its head and turns around and goes away. That's so crazy to hear this. It's so crazy. So I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And so that got me thinking, okay, now I can sit here. And I didn't, I thought a lot of it, right? I thought, well, maybe something, who knows, right? I just didn't know. So it was two weeks later. And the same thing happened. It was with a different fish. And I didn't know whether this other fish I'd caught. There was no mark on it whether I could distinguish. It just did the same thing. A week later, and this was the funniest one, the fly comes down. And this is a fish that I can tell I've caught because it was missing the upper part of its tail. It had probably been caught in a gill net or an otter got it. So it's the upper part of its tail missing. It was a male, about seven pounds, and the fly is working its way downstream. And the fly only gets to eight feet of the fish. And it starts mine its mouth again, smack, smack, smack. It jumps out of the water like you just hooked it. I mean, does a complete flip. And then it rams its face down into the substrate on the bottom like it's a dog trying to scrape something off its nose. Like how he would have reacted like if how he, he were hooked. Like just like if he was hooked, but he's not hooked. And so I've since seen this behavior another, I don't know, five, six times over the years. And always when there's a school of fish that's been condensed into one place for a long period and you can sit and watch them. And my, my best guess is, look, these fish, you might think they don't remember, but all these fish in these cases were at least caught one, two, three weeks prior to seeing that fly again and going through that whole shenanigans of smacking their lips, doing backflips, ramming their face in the gravel. And I just came away thinking, you know, their memory is a lot longer than five seconds. And the, the emotional, visceral reaction they have to this fly is so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's the opposite of Pavlov's dogs who got watering mouths when they saw cookies. This is a, a fish that's like, 
screw that. I'm getting the hell out of here. This thing is evil. But why didn't you just put on a different fly? Well, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I guess I'm a creature of habit, and, and I did try different flies, and they don't react the same when they see a different fly. But it was probably about eight years after I saw that that I decided it didn't have to be the same fly if the water visibility is not great. I was fishing a run for winter steelhead, and uh, the day before, uh, over actually a couple of days on the drop, I'd caught a few fish out of this hole. And I was coming through, I think, on my fourth consecutive day, realizing that I'd probably milk the hole, but, you know, yeah. it's hard to leave your honey hole for winter steelhead because you're lucky if you get a bite a day. <laughs> so I go back through, and the second cast, the fly hits the water, goes swinging through, and all of a sudden this fish jumps out of the water twice in front of me. And I thought, holy shit, you know, steelhead. It does the same thing, two backflips. And then it goes skittering with its back across the surface for about 10 feet, and then it's gone. I thought, well, shit, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I went back through my journal, and I've kept a record of every steelhead that I've landed since age 10 in notebooks. And I realized that I had seen this behavior before. It's one of those things that you never recall because maybe you just haven't looked at the fish long enough. Maybe you're focused on something else. And I went back to about six to ten instances in my life where I'd cast out, and I'm sure all anglers have had this who fish steal a lot. You cast out, the fly goes through, and then all of a sudden a fish starts jumping out of the water like you've hooked yeah, it. Yeah, it happens to me, to me all the time. It happens. And, and, and I go, and I just think, ooh, I need to put that fly in front of that fish. Totally. <laughs> and, and I think this happens. But I was like, I've, I've come up with, because I've seen this behavior enough times since that time, that I'm utterly convinced that any fly that's come in the water that looks anything similar to what they bit in winter, because the visibility in the water is not nearly as good as low flows in summer, that they just go apeshit over. And they're like, some of these fish, some fish are like, you can see them. In, in, in clear winter water, you can see some fish just sink to the bottom. That's what most fish do. When they've seen a fly or when they've been hooked and caught before, I can watch these fish. They just sink right down as soon as the fly or the plug or the jig comes in front of them. But there is this minority of fish that think they're hooked by the phantom fly just from seeing it. And they're not, but they go apeshit and act like they are hooked. So how long do you think it takes for them to forget? You know, that's a great question. And a hard question, I know. Yeah. Now, we don't know for... Um, we don't know really for steelhead, but I can say this in bass, thanks to all those bass tournaments, there's been a tremendous amount of money invested in understanding catch and release. And what they did find were two things. One is that bass bit at different rates. Certain bass based on certain aspects of their metabolism bit differently. So the long question people have had is, can you kill all of the biters and the biters being those fish that bite your hook and then you kill and take home. If you catch all the biters, you're not going to have anything left to fish for except mm -hmm. for the non-biters. Well, there's some truth to that though. That's very simple because every fish has to be a biter at some point in its life because you got to eat to grow. Okay. And it's not like you get lockjaw once you're done feeding. <laughs> yeah. So what they did find in bass was this, those bass that had really slow metabolisms that were not very bold, those are like the resident rainbows that they would bite and be hooked, but then it would take them a long time to be caught again on the same lure. In fact, it could be several weeks to even months, and sometimes they just didn't bite again at all. Now, again, you understand all the challenges with doing this research, you know, but they, it was pretty convincing evidence that those fish that were not very bold, that had that slow metabolism, they probably don't need as much food. They probably don't have to take so many risks to get the food. 
So they were more skeptical in terms of biting again. Now, on the other hand, those fish that had really fast metabolisms, those fish that needed to eat 10 crawdads a day to keep their shit going, those fish would bite again right away within a day or two. Okay, now let me give you some street cred here, as if you need more. But you spend a ton, and your father as well, you guys both spend a ton of time snorkeling the river. Yeah. So you spend, I mean, do you spend more time snorkeling these days than fishing? It's it's close. I think I've snorkeled 2,000 miles of river now, and if I if I add it up, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't remember the number of hours, but yeah, I, I, I fish for steelhead in the winter. That's where I live. In summer steel, we don't have many. So most of my summers now and late spring are just spent snorkeling and trying to take photos and video and trying to understand the behavior of these fish. Like we were talking about when you're swinging a fly for steelhead or if you're casting a spoon or using some method where you cast out and you're kind of working your way in steps progressing downstream, it's so clear that those steelhead see that fly 20, 30, 40 feet ahead of them. Mm-hmm. They they know it's there. And I don't know whether they always can see exactly where the fly is at. But there's two interesting things is that they know we're there as soon as you step on the gravel bar. They feel, they as I as a snorkeler can pick you up. I can hear you on the gravel bar <gasps> really? from hundreds of yards away. It's just walking on it because... Uh, Sound carries really well. Yeah, you learned water. that in scuba diving. That it's, was one of the first things I learned in scuba diving. So it it's amazing. You know, you're coming up to a steelhead run, and there's no doubt in my mind, I can tell when that person's not only getting in the water, but I can tell usually once you get about 40, 50 feet from bank. And sometimes in the most still water cases where you've had really low flows, I can pick you up from probably 100 yards away. Whoa! Yeah, it's crazy. So if I can do that, and I don't have a lateral line... <laughs> These fish are very aware of all that movement that's going on around them on the river bank. I know. So I always laugh when some of these people are like, you know, my guides are painted black so the fish don't see it. I'm like, well, shit, the fish already knew you pulled up there. So the fish is saying to his buddy, I know this guy's got on his black guys, but I heard the damn guy coming from 100 miles away. Oh, that's so crazy. They know we're there. They know we're there. And, and, and I think it comes back to some fish don't care. Some fish just don't care. They're they're in a they're 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 in the the set of mind that whatever a little fish's brain is firing away on, it's like I don't care. And other ones like I'm not going to risk it. I'm going to sink the bottom. Okay. Go hide. And you watch them do that. Do you watch them when they get upset? They sink down. They sink down. Stressed fish, um, scared fish, as I like to call. Them. They they tend to sink down to bottom. You'll see them slowly sink down into the depths, and then you lose them in the shadows. Now, me as a, a diver, what I like to do. It started as a fourteen year old boy. Uh, I mean, I've been snorkeling long before that. But behind our house, I had my cousin start by casting spinners in front of me while so you I, were in the water. While I'm in the water, so I can see the spinner coming across, and he was twelve. And I could watch the steelhead underwater take the spinner. And you'll notice a couple cool things about fish. And people can see this from above water too, but it's really hard to see underwater. Underwater gives you a little bit better perspective, as I like to say. And with a spinner, it's pretty easy, right? The fish is coming up, the line is tight, so it's just going to grab the spinner. What's interesting, though, is when you have some slack. So I watched him fish. It was two years later. I watched him fish with a stonefly nymph, right? So you cast it upstream, let it go the way... Men, you know, mend your line, let it dead drift down through. And by the time the fish that I watched, two of them, 
One time he felt the fish just as the fly line started to tighten up on that dead drift part, you know, and then it's going to start to swing through the water column. And he felt the pull and he set the hook and it was gone. Are you in the water? At this I'm point? in the water at this point. And he says, I missed it. I felt it. And I said, yes, he did. And I sat there. I, I'm like, I don't want to move because this fish knows I'm here and I have to, it takes me, usually what happens is I have to crawl in the water from the other side. I have to belly crawl down the river bank. I have to crawl in the water and be all so slow so they don't, the fish don't know I'm there and see me. I mean, they obviously know to some degree that I'm there, but they'll let me be there. So what I noticed, it was, it was about uh, a week later, my cousin doing the same thing in a very similar place. And this time he felt the snapping, he felt the jerks. So the line starts to tighten up on the swing and you feel a pluck, pluck. He went to set the hook and the fish was gone. He goes, what happened? And I said, well, this is interesting. The first time the fish had taken the fly about three seconds before you ever felt it. No. So it took the fly on the dead drift and then kept swimming backwards, just floating downstream at the current. At the with, same at speed. At the same speed so you don't feel it. Because what the fish's whole goal is to not feel the tension of the leader in its mouth. So it's trying to sample whatever it is, and it doesn't have hands to sample it with, so it's got its mouth. And just as it started to tighten up, because the fish got so far downstream, the line started to tighten on the fish. It wasn't because it was swinging. He had it on the whole time, and he didn't know. So by the time he set the hook, the fish, you could actually see it trying to spit it out. The second take, where we felt those little tugs on the line, the fish again took the fly about four seconds this time before he felt it. And he didn't feel it until the fish was trying to spit the fly out. So I was watching the fish's mouth move open and shut really fast. And it's backing down and it's trying to spit the fly out because it feels the tension of the leader on its mouth. So the, he didn't even feel it until the fish had almost spit it out. So, so many of these takes that we feel as anglers are not, I mean, the fish has actually often had it. What could he have done to have hooked up? You know, you're, you're kind of stuck in those situations. I mean, that's just living with the trade-off. I think I haven't found any way to solve it other than as soon as I feel the pluck, I ram the hook home as hard as I can to the inside bank. None of this, just lean it to the inside bank. None of the let the fish turn. The fish is not going to turn. So when you feel that mine on the end of your fly line, which is a nipping, like you're fishing a fly, but it feels like a bait hookup, mm -hmm. set the hook really hard because it's spitting it out. It's in the process of spitting it out. Do you know what I think is, is really interesting? And I, I touched on this yesterday, actually, when I was fishing with Jerry. He had mentioned watching a fish take a fly, and he said that in a matter of seconds, that fish had basically opened and closed its mouth countless times on a fly. And then in hearing you say what you just did about the, the fish making the, the, the face at the fly. Yeah. And then in watching the sculpin video that you just showed me, yeah, all of a sudden I'm thinking that fish can open and close their mouths at a ridiculously fast rate. And you don't think that because you land your fish and of course in the moment when you're releasing the fish, you can see it moving its mouth slightly up and down and it always right. looks so slow. Can they move their mouths at a ridiculously fast rate? I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yes, they can. And it's faster than I would have thought. And, and when you're underwater, it's really incredible because I don't think you can capture it all with just your eye. It's happening so fast. Like like Jerry said to you, I mean, it's snapshot and open five, six times in a second. And, and they are feeling, I think, the texture. 
Mm-hmm. And, and they're trying to get a sense of whether I think there's something really hard in there, which would tell them it's probably not a great food source, or whether it's softer and more pliable, which is going to tell them, boy, this might be a little bit better food source. It could be also that they taste some of the dye in the feathers. I don't know any of us who haven't sat there. Look, a fish only has its mouth, and its tongue is a very sensitive organ in there. And so I would have to imagine they know what tastes good and what doesn't taste good because all types of bait aren't equal, and they like to eat certain fish over other fish. It's true. So I would have to guess that given the chance to taste a fly, that it probably doesn't taste too good because every time I've tried, you know, if you've had the dye get all over your fingers after you fished a fly all day or something, it doesn't taste good, right? There's that nasty kind of dull ink taste. It's true. Ink doesn't taste good. If your feathers are bleeding out on you in the water, you should be fishing different I've feathers. got problems, don't I? Yeah, well, it's called laziness and fly preparation and just trying to get on the water as soon as I can. Tell me what you were saying about the fish taking the eyes, taking from the head. So if you think about a fish when it goes to eat something, I don't know how many people have actually watched like a cutthroat or a bull trout eat another fish. When they eat those fish underwater, it's really clear that they don't bite them by the tail. They bite them right at the head, right where the eyes are. And they hold them there like a python for anywhere for a few seconds to half a minute, either break the back or suffocate it. And then what they do is really quickly, as you saw in the video, they flip that fish around and they suck the head into the mouth. So almost every time you catch a bull trout, a cutthroat, or whatever it is, and it has a fish in its mouth, it's always the tail that's sticking out. And I call that the movie ticket. (laughs) It's right there. Like, cast a ticket, pull it out. And I think, we don't know why they do this, but it's consistent across all salmon. We see it in sculpin. We see it in almost all fish that eat other fish. And I think, for me, the eyeballs are a great target. Fish have decent eyesight. Um, but of course their eyes are at such an angle that it's very hard to get depth perception at times. So when they have something to focus on, like big eyeballs on a juvenile fish, I think they immediately go for it. So when we're fishing all of these intruder or, or any type pattern where we have a lead eye on there and you're fishing that and you're wondering why that hook is being, is hooking the fish on the outside of the mouth. And that's pretty common now that we use these long, either shank type flies or, you know, kind of the, um, uh, the leech, the string leech patterns, the fish, what happens, and I've seen this is they go up and they take the head of a fly where your lead eyes are. And that leaves the tail end of that fly to flop around on the outside of the mouth. So when you go to set your hook, it's naturally going to find its place in the quickest point of purchase, which is the outside of the maxillary often. And those are fish that you can lose much more easily than if you hook them on the inside of the maxillary. So I think they're using the eyeballs as their bullseye. That is so crazy. So the video that you showed me, it shows the sculpin has the fry. Is that what it is? Yeah, a coho fry. And he's got it just almost right below, right yeah, right below the eye, kind of around the neck, if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. And then in a matter, I mean, I asked you to replay it like four times. Yeah, yeah. In a matter of a fraction of a second, you can't even see it, all of a sudden that that fry is completely revert or, or swapped around and left tail, you know, sticking out like a tongue of, of the sculpin. Totally. How does it do that? Is it, is it sucking? Is it, is it sucking? Sucking it in fast like that? I, I think so, and they have teeth all over their tongues. And I think that, <gasps> oh, okay, okay. that's that you know, that's the and I think this is the, the 
the critical thing to cutthroat and why the cutthroat have those teeth on the back of their tongue and rainbow rarely do is that when you eat fish, that's your traction. That's your way. That's your little way to keep, make sure the little thing doesn't get out. So that fish gets stuck in there on the teeth and the tongue. But I also think you're right. It does suck. And I think it uses its water and its air bladder uh, for sculp and in particular to flip that fish around so fast. I mean, it's, right. it's crazy. My brain is spinning right now because after reading Arthur, the, the Jock Scott book, the Arthur Wood grease lining book, which your father did the, the revision, the intro to the revised version of that book. Yeah. I really started trying to fish a lot of my flies broadside. And that makes so much sense because if you think about the natural taper of most species of fish, for a, for a predator to come at it from the tail first, that tail is going to almost wedge in its throat. It's not going to go down easy. Yes. So, of course, they're going to want to go from a side profile or from an eye, which is why presenting your fly broadside makes so much sense. Ha! Yeah, and I... Ding, I, ding, ding. I try and winter fish almost... I'm going to guess that two-thirds of my swing in the winter is is fishing it broadside to some degree. And, mm. and, I, and I do it for that reason. I also think this... That if you just swing a fly and you just cast straight downstream at your standard steep angle and the fly comes across, all that fish sees is the outline of this really slim thing mm-hmm. that has no clue what the hell it looks like. So broadside gives that animal every opportunity to see the action of the fly that it can't see if it's just looking at the butt end of the fly. Mm-hmm. So the broadside starts to catch current and that makes the fly dive. It makes the fly rise. It rides with those currents. And it seems that that's really, I think, what attracts, you know, a fresh steelhead will bite anything. You could probably cast um, elk poop out there and it would bite it. But, you know, those fish that haven't, you know, they're tougher. They want a little something extra to convince them that this is indeed something natural and it's not something being cast by us little bastards to try and hook them. What's the craziest thing that you've seen down there? You know... I think the, the strangest thing was coming down the South Fork Ho River in the middle of winter and seeing uh, a steelhead in a pocket that was two feet deep, and it was a whitewater pocket. So this was a fast rapid. And I come down, and I went by, and I thought I saw something. And I thought, there's no way I saw what I think I saw. So I swam back up to the rapid. Well, I actually walked on shore. It was too fast to swim. Got back out and looked, and what I saw was true. There was a fish at the very burble of the pockets. You know, the water goes over the rock, mm-hmm. and then there's a huge whitewater burble, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the turbulence. The fish had its head buried under the rock, the big boulder, and its tail, it was wrapped in a U, and its tail was mm-hmm. out of the water, and the turbulent, the turbulence that was in that whitewater was pushing the fish's tail back towards its head, and it was in the perfect shape of a U. Why would it want to do that? You know, fish... It wasn't dying. It wasn't dying. It was chrome bright. Uh, it saw me, and its first instinct, and a lot of instincts in steelhead are due to what I call the ostrich. Bury your head. They don't see... I don't see them. The whole world's fine. <laughs> so, this is what they do as juveniles all the time. They go bury their head in a rock. Yeah, and adults, true, they Adults do. try and do it Aww, all so the cute. time. They're so cute. <laughs> and this one's in a U. And I've seen lots of steelhead bury their head. I've seen lots of ostriches, uh, thousands in my life. But this was literally amazing because I thought to myself, I told I told James Starr, who, was, who I was working with at the time, who was a close friend, I said, James, you imagine if you'd cast your fly into that pocket and snagged the fish in the tail on yeah. accident and then wondered how the hell you snagged a fish in the tail? That would be how. And that would be how. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's weird thing. And 
I think the second thing was finding what I've seen now more commonly is that some summer steelhead in, in smaller coastal streams will spend about half the day with their back out of the water. Mm. So these fish in really cold headwater streams where you've got lots of otter predation, and this is my hunch why they do it, is they will go stick their head under rock and they'll go to the channel margin, the shallow area, four or five inches deep, their back, their whole dorsal fin, and their tail tip will be out of the water dry. Are they sunning? Like, why are they doing that? I thought for a while that, boy, it's cold. Maybe they're trying to sun to heat themselves up. What I think they're doing is they're hiding from the otters. And the otters have a very hard time catching them in the shallows because they can't swim. in The, the otter can't swim in the shallows. Right. He can only run, and he has a hard time getting his head fully underwater and seeing everything with all the turbulence and the particulate that kicks up from the fine sediment that we often see in the shallows. So these steelhead, sometimes you'll walk up, and rather than seeing a whole school of them in a 10-foot deep pool, you'll see half of them sitting lined up in the shallow water, and they'll sit there for hours on end. And so just what we think of steelhead as an angler is very different sometimes from what the steelhead is really doing biologically to, to survive in any given moment. They, they face a lot of shit. They go mm -hmm. through a lot of things, and they do a lot of different weird things to survive it. Coming up, John and I talk about hatcheries and more fish biology. Again, thank you to J.M. Reed Bamboo Fly Rods. James works together with a number of anglers to ensure that his rods are continually tested and his designs improved upon. His life is dedicated to this beautiful craft, and it shows in the feel and capabilities in the rods he makes. This is not a part-time job for James. This is his full-time passion. I wholeheartedly encourage anyone thinking about having a bamboo rod made for themselves to get in touch with them. Again, you can find James at www.jmreadbamboo.com. Well, speaking of which, I, yes. I can't avoid it any longer. Oh. It's time I have to, to ask is. you about hatcheries. So here's kind of the timeline. What we've got is we've got a Dave McCoy interview slash podcast and I asked him about the hatchery situation, and, and he's very passionate about it. And a lot of the um, the facts and the um, the reasons why he's against hatcheries, uh, he wanted me to really refer to you so that we could just make sure that we were getting the right information. Because I am a, a, a fair woman, I believe. I did interview Greg Osborne. By the time that your podcast is aired, his will already have been out, so people have heard his reasons why he's an advocate for the hatcheries. And I just wanted to get some information from you about uh, hatcheries in your opinion. Are you afraid to say that you are for or against hatcheries? No, I, I think <clears throat> when I look at hatcheries, I think for one, it, it, it's in many, in many shapes and ways, hatcheries can be a taboo topic to talk about because they are controversial because you have some people that think the world will stop spinning if they go away. And you have other people who think that every hatchery needs to be gone if we're ever going to recover all wild fish. Mm -hmm. Now, I look at hatcheries from two perspectives. The first is from a social perspective. And um, there is no doubt in my mind that hatcheries provide important fisheries socially to people all around the lower 48. And particularly so in those watersheds that have had really degraded habitat where you're 
probably have very little chance of recovering any type of wild salmon over the course of a human's life. Degraded how? Degraded how, you know, we could talk about blockages and dams, a place like the Lower Cowlitz in Washington. We could also talk about a population that may have been over-harvested for 50 to 60, 70 years and has tremendous amounts of grazing or logging, or the watershed's been highly urbanized. Or there's been a lot of invasive species, such as smallmouth bass or striped bass, any types of degradation that would essentially limit the amount of available habitat to the salmon. Um, So socially, hatcheries provide important fisheries for people in areas that fisheries would otherwise not likely exist. And and I don't have a problem with that. I think that's completely acceptable. On the other side, there's a scientific viewpoint. And the scientific viewpoint is where we reach the junction of and I like to say it this way, everybody's allowed to have their own opinion, but you're not allowed to have your own facts. Mm-hmm, I love that. The facts are the facts. And the science part is where we get a greater deal of controversy because some people want to misconstrue the facts to make their point. And I would look at hatcheries, and I'm not going to talk about hatcheries in the sense of salmon because I think salmon, and you agree, Fisheries are different. People like to generally kill salmon and take them home and eat them. And hatcheries are really mitigating for a lot of lost salmon populations. But just real quick on that, because I've always wondered this. Um, A lot of the the salmon hatcheries, I mean, do they have any sort of negative impact to the the ocean life, for example? Yeah, no. And and I shouldn't, you're right, I shouldn't skip so far. And I would say this. When I first look at a hatchery, I'm going to say this. There's no way to have a hatchery and not have some negative effect on the wild population from the hatchery. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just because we have a limited amount of habitat, and you're putting competitors in there. The trade-off that people need to consider and take into context is whether or not removing or reducing the hatchery is going to have, what effect is that going to have on the wild population? In some places, it's going to be really small. It's not going to be much at all because the wild population has been really degraded or whatever it is, right? We don't need a specific example. In other cases, you're going to remove or reduce the hatchery, and you're probably going to have a strong effect. So we've got this gradient of potential effects. Now, when I think about hatcheries, and I want to start at the scale of smallness, meaning individuals, what hatcheries do certain things to steelhead and other salmon that make them less well adapted to surviving in the wild. And I don't think most people would argue with that. And it doesn't matter if it's the fish in the hatchery is from that watershed or from another watershed. There was just a recent piece of meta-research, a review of all the hatchery studies that use what we call native broodstock. That is, you know, they actually took the fish from the watershed, spawned it in a hatchery, reared them, let them go. The average survival, this was, this included studies on Chinook, coho, Atlantic salmon, and steelhead, those studies found on average that the broodstock hatchery fish survived only 50% the rate of the wild fish. Why? This is the golden question. There's a lot of reasons why. First, when you go into a hatchery, we have effects that we call, these are, these are what we call phenotypic. And phenotypic means uh, there's a slight genetic component, but it's a really strong environment. And when, the, and when the effect is environmental, it means it's reversible. It means that even though that animal might have something that makes it less fit, it doesn't mean it won't be passed on to its offspring. So, uh, for example, fish in hatcheries have uh, smaller brains as juveniles because they don't uh, get all of the normal environmental stimulus that 
animals get in the wild. So they have smaller brains, less developed neural networks in their brain. They also have less developed uh, sensory systems in their lateral line. And the water chemistry in hatcheries, especially in lead pipes and copper pipes, can influence uh, their olfactory orientation system and their otolith microchemistry. The otolith is an ear bone that is part of um, the homing system in the fish. And so disruption of this, you know, essentially what's happening is the chemicals are disrupting their ability to navigate not only uh, through the ocean, but likely to find their way back home again. And that's part of the water chemistry that is a result of us using, you know, things that are not natural, copper mm -hmm. pipes, lead pipes, concrete. Also, fish that are raised in hatcheries tend to have fewer vertebrates per body length than wild fish. And that's because they grow so rapidly in a hatchery that when you grow really rapidly, you're unlikely to be able to produce as much skeletal structure and as strong a skeletal structure as you could otherwise. And this happens in nature too. In nature, fish that grow really fast tend to have less vertebrates per body inch than fish that grow slower. But when you combine all of these effects, fewer vertebrates, less dense muscle structure, smaller brains, maladapted lateral line systems, alterations to the homing components of the fish, you end up with a fish that is really not very fit for surviving in the wild. But none of those effects are genetic, meaning that if that fish comes back and spawns in the wild, it will not pass those along to its offspring. That's because those are what we would call uh, nurturing effects, right? Those are things that were just shaped by its environment that it was reared in. And my analogy is it's not much different than talking about a movie when I was a little boy was The Kid Who Was Raised by Wolves. Right? The kid who was raised by wolves and didn't experience human beings has a different neural set of connections in his brain. He's going to use different parts of his brain to communicate than he would if he was communicating with humans all the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's not much different, right? But that kid could go have offspring with his wife, and that maladaptation that he has due to his environment is not going to be passed on to the kid. Right? The kid will be able to speak and communicate fully. Mm -hmm. He's not going to have a different brain. So are, they, are these hatchery fish, when they're being reared, are they in just standard tanks? Are they in an outdoor man-made structural environment? What are they, where, where are they being reared? Most, most hatchery fish are reared in concrete raceways, and those essentially look like, you know, uh, 10 foot wide by 4 foot deep troughs that are cut into the concrete, and uh, they're fed, uh, uh, you know, a constant supply of water and food. So why don't they just simply put them in little fake river systems that that's, have natural flow? That's a great point, you know, and there is research that definitely indicates, and they call that enriching the rearing environment. That's enriched hatchery environment. And that works. It helps increase brain size. It doesn't screw with their otoliths in the same way. It also uh, helps improve some of their lateral line structure. The problem with that is it's really damn expensive because you're trying to create an artificial stream and artificial streams are really expensive to run and create and you can't rear nearly as many fish so if we want artificial streams like that which is entirely possible it's probably going to amp up the cost of hatcheries say if we we're paying a dollar per smolt you're probably going to end up costing somewhere between 20 to 30 dollars it's tremendously Whoa. expensive so here's a question then if you were to take 
a hatchery reared fish that was reared in that very luxurious um, environment that, yeah. that's overly expensive. And you were to take its carcass and you were to compare it with a native fish, a completely wild fish. What would you find if you were to take out the otoliths and examine them? Well, the otoliths would tell us a couple of things. Uh, the otoliths are important because they're a calcium formation in the bone and they're constructed by the water chemistry. So what we could tell from that otolith is I could tell that fish was reared in that stream that was from the hatchery because the water chemistry in the stream would show up in its otolith. The mineral content. The mineral content. So the mineral content in that otolith would be different from the mineral content in the otolith of the fish that was reared in the wild. In fact, But I, what if it was reared in the same stream? Right. Could you tell a difference between those two fish? Certainly we could. And, and I'm going to tell you a couple reasons why. And now, uh, the one thing is we can go into a watershed... And we can tell exactly what creek the stream the, the fish is from from its otolith. So if they're within the same creek and 100 meters apart, we're not going to be able to distinguish the fish at all. Uh, but in the case of the hatchery, the hard part here is we don't want to forget that it's not just all about rearing. Rearing is a really big part of it. Now, freshwater rearing is important because in salmon and steelhead, let's, steelhead, 95% of these fish die. By the time they reach one year of age, that's when all the selection is occurring, right? And you mean 95% of wild steelhead? Yeah, 95% of those eggs that she laid, that female laid, will die before the first year of life for those Like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, most will die. That's really important because that selects right away for those fish that are probably best suited to survive on that environment. Now, in the hatchery, all those fish are going to survive. So... All the fish that do survive means that we have those metabolisms that go from really fast to really slow, and we have all of these adaptations that could be good in some years but bad in others, so nature hasn't got to weed out. So what we've got... Selection. That's right. So we have a population of fish to individually all these fish to the average eye would look the same. But if we went in and did the genetic tests, what we would see is the genotype frequencies would be different. And that means that it's like going into and saying this, hey, we're all humans, right? But if I went up to an Eskimo and then I went to Africa, there would be very different genotypes. They're human. They're all the same, but they can't survive in each other's environments. A Kenyan is going to die within a few days in Alaska because he's going to die hypothermia Mm -hmm. if he doesn't figure it out. And the Eskimo is going to overheat and die down in Alaska. So they're humans. I mean, mean, down in in the uh, Africa. So they're humans. But there's all this genetic diversity that makes them different and each adapted to their own environment. And their frequency is such that every now and then an Eskimo is going to produce a a human that's not quite like the Eskimo, right? And maybe it survives and maybe it doesn't. And that's the type of mutation that we will also see in fish. So in the wild... Uh, some of those eggs are going to be, most eggs are going to be like the mother, right? They're going to have a metabolism, a physiology that tracks closely with the mother and the father. But then say 10 to 20% of those eggs are going to be bet hedges. They're like... Bet hedge. Bet hedge is, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket because environment is really variable. So that means these other 15 to 20% of my eggs won't normally survive in this river, as it is, but if it gets really low and droughty that year, they might do really well when the water temperatures are warm. So I'm going to make sure that I hedge my bet by not putting all my eggs in one basket. Now, all those fish survive equally well in the hatchery. So you end up with a pile of fish that are most likely not well adapted to the average survival in a year. The other point is this, that 
we've got uh, quite a bit of research now that indicates that when a male and a, fem- a female salmon chooses the male she likes through her olfactory senses, she can smell the strength of his immune system through his slime. In the hatchery, we choose the mates, and that's a problem. That's a, it's a potentially small problem in some cases. We don't know. And it's a potentially big problem in other cases. Mm-hmm. The point is we don't know what that effect is. So really for us to get the fish to be as natural as possible, we're going to have to let them select each other as mates. We're going to have to then take them and rear them in enriched hatchery environments, but also make sure that we cull out some of those fish that are genetically not going to do us much good in the average year because those are the we can't tell which fish those are we can't no we don't know yet the point is by trying to mimic nature so closely we end up spending so much money that it's probably best just to take all of that money and spend it at habitat restoration because the trade-off is hatchery fish aren't bad there's a couple of points hatcheries have very strong effects on fish and those effects range from really strong to really weak but they're all negative. There's none of them that are beneficial to surviving in the wild. Two, hatchery fish consistently, almost in all species, survive at far worse rates than wild fish. And the effects are worse for a species like steelhead and not as bad for a species like pink salmon. Steelhead, it's really bad because steelhead have so many different life histories, like the residents we talked about. They have some fish that smolt at age one, some that smolt at age two, some that smolt at age three, some at age four. They have adults that return after weeks in the ocean to one, to two, to three. You've got all of those life histories. And I think they found in the Nassan Skeena 36 life histories that Steel had displayed. A hatchery selects for two of those. That's crazy. That's the crazy thing is that, again, steelhead are bet hedgers. They are not a specialist at any one thing. They're a generalist. And as a result of being a generalist, they throw a lot of different things out there hoping something sticks to the wall. Just the opposite of a steelhead is a pink salmon. Mm. Two life histories. That's about it. They almost all do the same thing. They almost all return and spawn at the same time. They almost all out-migrate at the same age. Well, what do you mean by 36 life histories? Well, that means that we have fish that might mature. That, that, so we're going to add up. We're actually going to multiply all the life histories. So we know that fish can smolt at age one. H two, three, four. And so that's four life histories right there. That's four, and then five and six. We'll have even six-year-old smolts are not entirely uncommon for that's them right. to get. Yeah. And then we know this. We have six ocean ages. We have one through five, and then we also have fish that we call half-pounders, right, that only spend a few weeks in the ocean before coming home. So you got the, the six times the six because okay. all those combinations, and that's 36. Okay, got it. And that, okay. doesn't, that doesn't even account for all the repeat spawning. Now, if you had the repeat spawning, and we're talking over 80 to 90 potential life histories, and the hatchery, again, is going to produce one to three. I always go with the two because usually it's, they're, all, they're all the same small age, one, uh, and they usually come back as either a one or a two salt. You almost, I mean, 20-pound hatchery steelhead, right? You can, I, I see Bigfoot more than I see 20-pound hatchery yeah. steelhead. So. so you're being generous with the three. I'm being generous with three. Really, you're seeing two, and most of them, most of them are one. So hatchery steelhead cannot be as adaptive as wild steelhead. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're generally right, but I would say this, that if you plant hatchery fish in a habitat, and then you turn off the hatchery faucet and let nature select 
on those genotypes, then you're probably going to end up with a fish that is pretty well adapted to that environment if they don't go extinct, if they don't, you know, if they don't all die. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, they do have some adaptive, they have the flexibility within them to do what wild fish do. Nature just needs to operate on them again. And that's why it's tough because if we release hatchery fish every year, Mm -hmm. there's never any natural selection back on those to spawn in the wild because we still have all those other hatchery ones on top of them. So we keep plugging life support into them. That's right. That's right. pull the plug. I mean, in some cases we do because I think what we're seeing in the Skagit, people shouldn't write this off is that the Skagit, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, modeled the reasons trying to understand why the population is rebounding. And one of the most important reasons was the reduction in hatchery plants. So they responded, there's something going on there. And not only that, but there was a recent report out of the Columbia River that just came out this year by the Independent Scientific Advisory Board, ISAB. They came out as an independent group and they evaluated hatchery practices and wild fish recovery in the Columbia. And their conclusion was that, one, we are likely planting more smolts now than the Columbia River historically had. What's happening to the natural environment then? Are they... Great question, which is, how can we plant... How can... The rationale... My question is, how can we expect to plant more smolts now than we had historically when the habitat is severely degraded and not expect there to be what we would call a bottleneck somewhere where there's just way too many fish for a given amount of habitat? It's like burning the match at both ends. That's right, burning the match. And so what they're saying in the ISAB, and they didn't fully model this, but they strongly suggested that what is happening in the Columbia is that all of that habitat we're storing, a lot of it is being filled with hatchery fish. And those hatchery fish do not survive very well. And so as a result, despite doing all these habitat investments, it's not wild fish that are colonizing a lot of this new habitat. And that's triggering what we call density-dependent effects. And a density-dependent effect is when there's so many animals competing for a resource that the survival and growth of that animal that's competing for the resource begins to suffer because there's not enough of the resource. So is that like a lake that's stocked with too many trout and totally. no one fishes them? They all are small. Totally. And if a, and if a farmer who, who moves his cattle from one pasture to the other, it's the same thing. A pasture can only support so many cows for a given period of time. And it's interesting, too, because the ISAB's model indicated that a watershed that that hatchery fish reach density dependent effects at a lower population level than wild fish do by about a by about twenty percent, and I explain that like this: that means that if you had a river, it could hold five hundred hatchery fish before they got to density dependence. And this is just an example. This isn't in the report. Five hundred hatchery fish made them. You know, that's so many that the habitats what we would call fully seeded with juveniles. On the other hand, if those were wild fish, it could do 700 rather than the five. Why? Great question. The reason we don't fully know, but we think it's for a couple of reasons. First is that when hatchery, hatchery salmon return to a river, they tend to all congregate near the area where they released at the hatchery, and they spawn in those areas. Is this salmon and steelhead? Salmon and steelhead. Okay. Both do it. So when you congregate around the hatchery, the hatcheries are not always located in the best available spawning habitat. In fact, salmon and steelhead tend to distribute themselves, you know, throughout the watershed in a very patchy form. So you might have some way up high, some way down low, but you rarely see 70 or 60% of the population all congregated in a 10-mile reach, mm-hmm. which is what we can see in the worst cases for salmon. 
In the best cases, they're still congregating around the hatchery, but they're distributing themselves more. So by concentrating around the hatchery, it's likely, one, that they're spawning a habitat that's not optimal because it's just where the hatchery was. Two is they're also creating density-dependent effects because there's so many fish in such a small area. The second reason we, we have an idea that they might trigger density-dependent effects more is that we think, and there's pretty good evidence for this in Atlantic salmon, not as good in Pacific salmon, but that it appears that hatcheries and domestication of animals in general selects for faster metabolisms. Those fish that can grow and eat all that food really well in a hatchery. So when you release your juveniles out of a hatchery, only the bigger ones survive. The little ones just pretty much die and are cut off. Those big ones are ones with faster metabolisms because they were fed so much food in the hatchery and it wasn't limiting that their body's like, hey, this is great. I've got all the food I could want. I'm growing really fast and now I survived. And now when I go to spawn and pass my genes into the wild, they're going to have those really fast metabolisms. They're not going to have the same metabolism that is matched to the productivity of that environment. Their metabolism is matched to the hatchery. So what happens with the gene pool then when you dilute it, or is it diluting it? It's not so much diluting as it's truncating it. It's it's chopping off all of that important diversity in the tails. So if a hatchery fish spawns with a wild fish, what's going to happen then? Most of the time, now this is a great question, most of the time they don't survive very well. I mean, most of the time they don't even survive. In fact, when we look at wild populations of steelhead across the lower 48, what we clearly see is that low levels of introgression. Hatchery effects genetically in terms of a hatchery fish breeding and surviving in the wild are pretty low. Most populations that we see, even in the Columbia, remain, if not entirely, predominantly wild. So there's a low survival rate. So essentially what happens is when a hatchery fish spawns with a wild fish, you're essentially might as well put a zero on the page because it's your best guess it's not going to produce anything viable. God, that's so devastating. So what about from an economy standpoint? Well, the economic standpoint's a challenging one. Uh, I think what's what's challenging is that, and look, I don't want to be too hard. I want to be scientifically clear on what happens in hatcheries. And some of these mm-hmm. things, like like I just mentioned, there are cases, and we know this for, for Chinook, for example, that Chinook breed in the wild, and we can go to places like Yakima and Wenatchee River and studies. And those those studies... They've had hatchery fish purposely spawning in the wild for a long period to try and build the population. And those rivers were using hatcheries only for a conservation concern. They do appear to survive and produce some fish. We don't know why it's different, but it's likely that the wild populations were so small and so many hatchery fish are released for the purpose of them breeding in the wild that you're going to have some survive no matter what happens because the sheer number of them. So... When we go to steelhead, it's different, and we think that the reason we don't see as much integration and they don't survive as well is because steelhead have so many life histories that it makes it really tough for the hatchery fish to survive. I think what we face with the future of hatcheries is we need to be smart with them. We need them in some watersheds where uh, we have really degraded habitat, and they provide fisheries for people. Those are important places for hatcheries. But I would argue economically that we also need, and we biologically, there's a clear argument for having what we would call no hatchery zones, which are rivers without hatchery fish. That's important because we can eliminate the hatchery from those rivers and we can get a stronger environmental signal to determine exactly what is happening in the watershed without those competitors around. So it's important for research and monitoring. 
But economically, it's important, too, because, look, um, every year that as we rear fish, the cost to rear increases with the cost of inflation. But we're typically not getting more money to pay for hatchery, uh, to pay for hatchery production. Every year, the budgets, as we all know, we have big budget issues here in the United States, across the board for many states at the national level, too. And as a result of those budget issues, uh, there's been declining funds for hatcheries. And we can see clearly 10, 15 years down the road that we're going to reach a point where hatcheries are simply being closed without any planning. And so I think my strategy would be Let's get together, all of us, decide where the places are that we absolutely need the hatcheries to remain. Let's decide the places where it's least likely that the hatcheries are going to do anything good and more likely they're just going to do bad things. And let's get them out of those areas and consolidate the funding into those other rivers where we absolutely need them. And I think that's a strategy that gives us a balance, right? Some of the people who just want to harvest fish can go there. Other people who want the experience of fishing for wild fish and releasing them can go there. And people can go back and forth. It doesn't matter to me. But right now, it's kind of all or nothing on both sides. And we're not going to get anywhere just asking for hatcheries everywhere. Let's, let's just pay for this at the expense of our roads. And who cares about kids' education and all this shit? <laughs> or we're going to have no hatchery fish and there will be nobody, nothing to fish for. Screw it. We're going to go play bingo. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. no bingo. No bingo. We need to compromise. Okay, that's this is great. Is there anything else about hatcheries that you think is maybe relatively unknown or something that just needs to kind of be clarified? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things that people need to know about hatchery fishing. And the, the one point I want to reiterate again is that and I, I like to hit on this point because people, uh, one of the challenges I, I, I face is that people think that just because you've used wild broodstock that the fish's genes are exactly the same as those in the populations. So I always want to go back to the point that, yes, but when you look at humans, we have a Danny DeVito and an Arnold Schwarzenegger and their genes are clearly different and they look very different. And we have people that are... Um, you know, Filipino gymnasts who might be four foot five. You have a you have a an Aboriginal person from Australia that may be four foot ten that needs twelve hundred calories a day to having a huge Swede who's six foot ten, four hundred pounds, and needs ten thousand calories a day. That diversity, that those are genotypes. Every person is a genotype essentially, and that diversity of genotypes is what makes us able as humans like any other organism to survive across all of these complex environmental ecosystems that we live in and fish are the same way. And so when we take native broodstock from the hatchery, it doesn't mean just because the genes came from the hatchery, what you're saying is the genotype came from a population, but the genotype itself is not known whether it's representative of the whole population or whether it's just a Danny DeVito or an Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so Broodstock does not guarantee that you're not going to alter the genetics of that population. What's the ratio of, I didn't, I've never asked this before, the ratio of broodstock to offspring that they use? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, this is a great question. So, in, in, in this is one of the very different things. In nature, in steelhead, in any given year, about 10% of the adults produce 50 to 80% of the offspring. Very few, mm -hmm. right? The 10 percenters. That is simple biology and evolution. That's the way it works. There's haves and have-nots, and, and that's the way it is. And that's the way it is in nature. Now, in the hatchery, it's very different, which is in the hatchery. I'm scared. In the hatchery, we're taking about 1% to 2%, right? 
very few adults, very small population, and we're producing a pile of them. And all of them survive from egg to smolt, which is the highest period of mortality in nature. So we end but up... Per, per cycle, how many broodstock are they using? Oh, well, anywhere, you know, in a, they're, they're taking relatively, you know, for steelhead, it's somewhere between 25 to 150 steelhead. Okay, that's still not that many fish, considering not, that's going to account for how many a thousand. Well, that's the that's the hard thing is there from those they're going to release anywhere from fifty to four hundred thousand smolts, and when they're releasing that many smolts, you're probably wild smolts are probably only somewhere around a quarter of that total, maybe a third, maybe half in a really great place. So we're also tend to swamp those those wild fish right and steelhead are interesting because there's this other point that steelhead are particularly attractive to predators like birds and sea lions and that's because steelhead swim at the top of the water column as smolts chinook and cohos tend to swim deeper in the water column mm. <clears throat> than steelhead and steelhead do it because they're bigger hence the weed lines hence okay. the weed line they're bigger fish they feel bolder i can be in the upper 10 feet and so who attracts all the predators from the bird land yeah of course steelhead, steelhead. <laughs> and so when you send all those steelhead out well here's the other issue not only do they attract predators because the hatchery ones swim at abnormally higher rates in the water column than wild ones but that more hatchery fish are not... So when hatchery fish get to the salt wedge, say like in the Columbia or the Fraser, they've got to be ready, right? And wild fish that aren't ready might spend a day or two in the upper part of the salt wedge in the brackish water until they fully hit the ocean and go out. But most of them just hit it and go. Hatchery fish, on the other hand, a lot of them are not ready to smolt. They get the Pied Piper effect, which is everybody swims downstream just because everybody else is doing it. Oh, no, okay. So a lot of those fish will have to spend more time in that salt wedge, the really upper part of the water column, attracting predators. And they don't even know what a predator is because they've just spent one year living in this environment that has no predators. Yeah, it has absolutely pets. bean bags. It has uh, strudel cakes. <laughs> Pellet food. And fine scotch yeah. for these turkeys. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, they're in the ghetto. And they're like, shit, the world's a lot harder in the ghetto. Now I'm drinking grape juice. And I'm getting the nine fired at me every day. So they're screwed. So they, steelhead, can attract predators. And this is interesting because in the Columbia, there was research that showed that the, the amount of Yearling hatchery steelhead smolts that were in the system negatively influenced over a 20-year period the survival of Chinook. So the more hatchery steelhead you had coming out of the Columbia smolts, the lower your survival was of those Chinook. So not only can hatchery fish influence their own species, but also others. others. Got it. And this is the this is kind of for me the kicker is that. We need to think of hatcheries in the context and scale of the amount of habitat we have left. There needs to be, I think, a balance between how many hatchery fish you release, how many wild fish we have, and how much habitat we have. The estimates right now are not only that we are producing more hatchery smolts in the Columbia than we did historically with wild smolts when the habitat was perfect, we're also doing it at the scale of the whole North Pacific. Japan, Russia, and Alaska unleash millions and millions, tens of millions of pink salmon and chum salmon into the North Atlantic every year. There is research that now indicates that in the years when ocean conditions are not very good for feed, 
that the sockeye returning to Alaska are smaller sized because of all the competition for food with those hatchery pink and chum salmon. So when we think of hatchery fish, we just can't think of their effect in our own river. We've got to begin to think that we've altered the ocean's productivity, its water temperatures, its water chemistry. We've altered all these nearshore areas, and yet here we are filling up the same bathtub with far more fish than it likely had in its wild, pristine heyday, and we're expecting to see something other than what we get, which is generally poor survival because there's so many mouths out there to feed and not enough food. And what we don't consider, too, and this has not been researched, is that the pink and chum are so little as smolts, right? The size of your pinky when they go out. Their main food source are plankton. It's the bottom of the food chain. And those plankton provide all the food for the krill, the squid, the sand lance, and all those other fish that are feeding our big salmon, chinook and uh, coho and steelhead and sockeye. So it very well could be that by allowing, I put it this way, right? You got a woodpecker in a tree, but you got a shit pile of termites at the base of that tree. The woodpecker's tree ain't going to be there very long, but most people would never consider the termites to be the problem. But you can have a what we would call a bottom-up effect, which is that certain animals, pink and chum, may be eating so much of the food in the North Pacific that there could be negative effects on these other fish to eat other food. It's happening with sockeye. What we don't know is whether it's happening with kings and steelhead. Oh, a triggering effect. A trigger effect, the fact that it's indirect. It's a fact that because I'm eating this plankton, and that plankton later on is going to be transferred because it's going to be eaten by something larger like krill, and that krill is then going to be eaten by steelhead but because there's now less plankton available, there's less krill. Because there's less krill, steelhead survive at lower rates. Jeez. And then from just regarding mass, is this why... I've heard that the more fish that you release, the more hatchery fish you release, the few, the less of a return you get. Generally, in a lot of cases, and I wouldn't say that's ubiquitous because now uh, my dad has done that work and he's clearly showed, particularly for steelhead in a lot of rivers, the general trend was the more you released, <clears throat> the fewer you got back. From an economical standpoint, if you're looking at it uh, with a dollar figure, it's definitely n not going to make sense. No, no. In Puget Sound, uh, I think that in Puget Sound, based on the returns over the last five to ten years, I think the average survival rate of hatchery steelhead, not even 1%. The cost of those fish range somewhere from $150 to, $250 to $2,000 per adult harvested. I that is crazy. You could live off lobster for a You could live off lobster. And I think that uh, Ed Connor, a scientist from Seattle City Light, gave a presentation I saw a month ago. I think he said the average cost of a hatchery, Chambers Creek Steelhead in Puget Sound, harvested was 400 to $500. Oh, my God. So we think of, okay, do we want to invest all of that money to get a fish back? And put it this way, the Chambers Creek fish, the average fish comes back at five pounds. Five pounds, and it fights for 20 seconds before it rolls over. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's almost 100 bucks a pound. And I don't want to go for the size because it, steelhead aren't all about size, and it's but obvious. But I'm talking <laughs> investment and return. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You're exactly right. The ROI, the return on investment for those programs is really poor. And that's why we're interested in working in Puget Sound. And that's why we think that, you know, there's ways 
the status quo isn't working. Mm -hmm. There's better ways to do things. We need to experiment to find the right way to run the hatcheries and manage the wild fish. And we can do that. We just need to think a little bit differently, a little bit outside the box, and understand that even if we close hatcheries or reduce their plants in some areas, if that doesn't work in 10 years, you can start them again. This isn't... Let's experiment. It's yeah. experiment, right? And that's the point is that we need to try things to see what works. And to do that, we need large-scale experiments. I don't want to spend all our last dollars trying to investigate little tiny things. Let's spin this on big things. Let's, let's make some rivers wild in the sound, make some hatchery, try the hatchery fish different, not Chambers Creek, and see what works. Let's give it eight years. Let's give it two generations of a life cycle of steelhead. And eight years, let's come back to the table. What did we find? What's going to work moving forward? And do it again. Do we need another eight years? But in any case, it's better than what we're doing now, which is saying we're going to keep the status quo because we're afraid of losing it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the other side saying, I want all hatcheries closed because we're afraid that we're not going to have any more wild fish. And we think that there's a balance to be found there. And that, you know, asking for all or nothing, black or white, unfortunately, even if it's scientifically founded, socially is generally not acceptable in, in America in particular, right? Because black or white, which is the same in Canada, that doesn't work with me. You've got to meet me somewhere in the middle, and I think it's entirely possible. Look, I, I don't think hatcheries are this evil ship that, that comes in the dark at night and destroys all the productivity of wild fish. But I think we have too many hatchery fish. I think we have too many. And I think that we need to scale that to make sure that the hatchery fish are really occurring in the places where they need to. And the wild fish are given the chance to rebound. Because... What good does it do us to spend those hundreds of millions of dollars on habitat restoration if we're not going to allow the wild fish to increase in numbers and use it? I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. Um, thank you for the clarification. That's really, really helpful. So looking ahead, what would you like to see us do to help TU move forward and try to make a difference? Well, we would love to have people go to our website and sign our credo. So that's a big thing. If you guys could Where put the, that uh, it's www.wildsteelheaders.org. And we have a Facebook site that is Facebook Wild Steelheaders United. And so if people can go to the wildsteelheaders.org page, our credo is on there. We ask people to sign it, uh, to join that and you know, if people want to donate to TU or to the initiative, that's great too. But the first thing is we need to grow the army because we all want, as you said, and you've said it so clearly, we all want more steelhead. This is about trying to get more opportunity and, and not just for the anglers in their own rivers, but for anglers across this whole region. So uh, that to me is the big thing. And if I could say one thing, and I, I think you said it so lucidly in Shane Anderson's film, is that pick a battle, a topic, educate yourself on it. And then fight the battle. If win, great. If you lose, move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have said it better. And I think that nails how we're going to have to deal with this, this increasing concern that all of us have as steelhead anglers. With lots of anglers, we're really good at it. We have probably fewer, fewer fish to fish over, but we're really good at it. We're going to have to do something about that. And so this is our whole goal. Let's all come together to the best of our abilities, identify the things we agree on, and let's become the force that we should be as this huge army of steelhead anglers. Let's make the world the way we want to see it. Let's not wait for somebody else to do it. I love it. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? No. 
Well, actually, I actually I would. So there, there's. I want to say this. I didn't know you. I mean, I knew you because lots of people know April Vogie, and that is kudos to you for all the hard work that you've done, and 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 I think really deserved work too. Because oh, thank you. yeah, you've look. We've had some great discussion. You've busted your ass to make what you've made of yourself, and I love that fight. And I think it's really important. And so, if there are people out there that might not know April Voki, <laughs> no, look, I, I say this. I in made all, it purple. <laughs> I say this in all sincerity: is that we all need examples of people to look up to, and people should look up to you for that. You've done a lot. I mean, not only have you become an amazing angler, but now you're. I mean, all the transitions you've gone through as an angler, all these cool stages, and here you are fighting the fight, but you're educating all these masses. And so I think you're somebody that people should look up to. So if I had one comment, yeah, it's that people should look up to you. And you're not only obviously a great role model for all the women that want to get in fly fishing, but you're a role model for all of these people who want to look at the world from a different perspective. And I think people need to look up to you and need to listen to you because you're going to convey from your heart. And I think that you're honest. Oh, thanks, John. Well, yeah. I can't do it without you guys. So well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next time as I travel to the Midwest to meet up with Rick Custage. Thank you so much for listening. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.